ChatGPT was launched in late November 2022 and it netted 5 million users in a month. It can create content that passes fairly effectively for human communication. Is that wonderful or worrying or both? You can see the implications for workplaces and for schools. So clearly we need to get our heads around this sooner rather than later. I'm now wondering about that Christmas card from Auntie Sue. How are you feeling about using AI in your life and work every day? Are you embracing these tools or getting a little anxious about what it might mean for either the way you work, your job prospects possibly if you're a younger person, or just whether or not you're going to be interacting with a real live human being or a chatbot and whether you would know. Toby Walsh is a Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales AI Institute. Toby, welcome. Good morning, Hilary. Great to be chatting about this today. I am windmilling my arms a little bit, uh, (laughs) (laughs) the danger robot, but I'm sure it'll be fine. We also have with us Dr. Ben Hamer, who's a work futurist. He is adjunct professor at Edith Cowan University's Centre for Work and Wellbeing. Ben, great to have you here. Hi, Hilary. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so fascinated fascinated by this subject. Just looking at the things that people have got ChatGPT to write so far is hilarious. Toby, tell us first what is so special about this AI. It's not the first chatbot, an agent you can have a conversation with, speak to. Um, we've had those, in fact, since the 1960s. But it is much more capable than previous chatbots. And they've made it very accessible. It's free to use. You just have to sign up once. Um, and uh, you can start asking it questions, getting it to do your homework or, or whatever. And is it better than other chatbots? Is it, is it less clunky? It is a bit less clunky. I mean, all the other tech giants, uh, uh, Google and the like, have their own versions. Um, but they have made this a little more directed. Um, and also, it tends not to make so much stuff up, which is one of the problems. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this uh, later that these chatbots have. They don't necessarily um, always say the truth. And and what they say is very convincing. So you've got to have um, a bit of scepticism with the output. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a generative AI. What does that mean? Like, is that is that an order of magnitude different from uh, the, the chatbot you get when you do your car insurance? Uh, no, it's uh, it's the latest uh, craze in AI. Last year, there's been a lot of progress made with generative in the sense that it can generate can generate text but also um, your listeners may have seen i've uh, used lens or one of these new apps that makes um, uh, fun pictures so we can also generate pictures um, and now we can generate audio and we're starting to generate even video so um, is the ai um, making things up for us um, sometimes it's making up uh, the correct answers but as i said sometimes it's also making up incorrect answers i also love that people have been asking it to do just very silly things like offer advice on how to remove a peanut butter sandwich from a vcr in the style of the king james <laughs> bible yay verily forsooth do not put your sandwich in there <laughs> these people are very creative and obviously they're they're matching and exceeding what that ai can do but i'm very excited to hear from you today if you're listening your reactions to this idea? I mean, here's this thing that can uh, create content that is quite hard to tell from content created by a human. How are you feeling about that? Is that something where you think, wow, I can really see how that could be used in all kinds of situations in my workplace or other workplaces to take those menial tasks off other people? Or are you thinking, I am a little bit worried about what this means for the skills that I might need in a modern workplace, for example. Uh, Ben, have you been playing with ChatGPT and you using that or other AI tools in your day-to-day life recently? 
Yeah, I have. So I think for me, um, in the past, and Toby was talking about it, it was relatively clunky. So um, previous platforms and, and those that came before ChatGPT, I would play around with them and it would get to the point where it would have just been easier if I did it myself. Whereas for me now, ChatGPT is a real game changer in terms of the level of sophistication. So I've been using it to draft emails, to undertake research, to write the first draft of any report that I need to do, um, and also just asking it questions that I might otherwise type into Google and scan 10 different websites to get an answer. Now I just ask one specific question and it spits it back at me. So it's uh, it's been pretty powerful and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, a few colleagues use other platforms like Jasper AI to write LinkedIn posts or blog posts. But uh, as you said, it's only, it's relatively new. It's two months ago today that it launched. So I'm still uh, still learning how to be good at it. There's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, it could take some of those menial marketing tasks off people. As you say, social media posts, uh, networking posts. I saw a, a live music venue was going, oh, God, we can't be bothered writing 200 little blurbs about all the bands. We'll just get the AI to do it. Does that call into question the necessity of doing some of these things in the first place? I mean, do we really need LinkedIn posts generated constantly? Well, I think we'll, we'll, that will definitely be something that we'll grapple with over the coming uh, few months, I think, whether or not we're just getting content that keeps getting spit out by an AI or a bot uh, versus uh, that that comes from humans. I think we'll still definitely see the relevance of those kind of platforms. Um, the hope is that people use the the chat GPT and those generative AI platforms in the right way, which is to do research, to do a first draft of something, but still overlay it with their own unique perspective or original thinking as well. That is a lovely hope, and I look forward to that happening in the world. Uh, you're listening today to Dr. Ben Hamer. He's a work futurist at Edith Cowan University Centre for Work and Wellbeing, and Toby Walsh, who's a professor of artificial intelligence at University of New South Wales. And taking your calls too and thoughts about artificial intelligence in our daily lives, because there's already a fair bit of it there. How are you feeling about the future of it as it uh, creeps ever further into the the worlds of work and study? As you've been hearing, Ben has been using it to write first drafts of reports, using it as a kind of better, bigger, better Google, bigger, better, faster Google. Some text messages coming in. Love chat GPT, though unfortunately my work has banned it recently, likely due to client data security. We need to embrace tools like this to make us more productive. It will likely replace some jobs, but always need a touch of humanity and fact-checking. That's from Brian in Ballarat in Victoria. And what are your thoughts on that, Toby? Well, there are a number of legal issues. Um, it's not just um, what the uh, caller said. Um, it's not clear whether we're actually taking proper perspective on the copyright of all that's been trained on a large chunk, about you know about half of the content of the internet, um, and whether that's respecting the intellectual property of those people. And so uh, companies may be a bit shy of using it themselves for fear of um, later being sued. Indeed, there's a big class action uh, lawsuit going through in, in the US. Um, these tools also can write computer code. And um, there's a, a, a big lawsuit from computer programmers claiming that their work has been stolen. Wow. So there are privacy and is there privacy and data collection issues for the user as well? Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, it's also been trained on, on all the data um, that you can find on the internet. So it, it may 
uh, unexpectedly reveal personal information or phone numbers. Um, it's very hard to predict um, what it's actually captured and, and when it's going to produce it. Interesting. And we don't know very much about uh, how it's it's been created. We'll get to that in a moment too. I want to go to Penelope on the south coast of Victoria. She's called in. Good morning, Hilary, and good morning to Ben and Toby. How do you do? I just wish to say as a mother and a grandmother and a wife and a sister and all those things, I'm very concerned after a life of education, being with educators all my life who've given their lives to people learning through writing and art and music. They have to learn the skills themselves. The body learns incrementally. You need to articulate your ideas. You need to be able to write them down. You need to carry the consequences of your ideas. You need to discuss them with others. You need to share them. And I think this sort of stuff is terrifying to me because it cuts out human interaction. It's, it's a cheap, quick way. I can understand you can check your draft, but to me it's all about this world of non-interaction, not sharing with others, not sitting down and talking through things, not being articulate and not writing your own rough drafts, as Jeffrey Blaney would say, five or six times, getting it right. That's all. It's interesting, though, isn't it, to think, Penelope, that, uh, like Ben was saying, you could use it to write the first draft of something and then yes, refine that it. that means you haven't generated it yourself. That's, that's the lazy man's way out and the lazy woman's way out. You need to generate the stuff yourself. It should come out of you. It should come from your own research, your own work. It's a cheap, quick way to help people who want to get things done quickly and don't really care. And I am very concerned for my grandchildren this is not the way to educate people, nor the way to achieve work, nor the way to get jobs done. And I'm very concerned that it gives access to other people's private information. And I think this is all about this quick, fast, cheap, consumerist world of not caring about other people. That's what I think it's about. Well, I don't think you're alone, Penelope. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, it can feel pretty weird, can't it, this idea that there is a robot that's writing or perhaps speaking or communicating with you in a back and forth, in a conversation sometimes in some of the interactions we have online. How do you feel about that? One text says, can chat GPT make better quality governmental decisions compared to the politicians? That's from Frank in Blackburn, possibly. Uh, Sarah in Victoria says, my job as a vet would be very hard to fully replace with AI, but I think chat GPT could be great for reducing paperwork and improving client interactions. For example, a written explanation explaining diabetes treatment. And another text from Julie says, I'm mightily concerned about military developments using AI. No regulation, little trend. Transparency. So there's really a lot to talk about. Our guests today are Toby Walsh, a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, and Dr. Ben Hamer, who's a work futurist at Edith Cowan University. Um, ben, there's already a fair bit of AI in our daily lives, isn't there? Can you tell us some of the ways that industries and, and businesses are using these tools? Yeah, so uh, IBM did a study where they found that over one third of organisations are already embedding AI in their day-to-day -day work. So it's not new. It absolutely is already in place. And noting that ChatGPT has only been on the market for two months, uh, Fishbowl did a study and found that out of over 4,000 working professionals, one third had already used ChatGPT at work. So there's a lot of momentum. If I think about where AI is already being used across industries, in finance, for example, it's used to analyse financial data to make predictions around market trends and inform investment decisions. Uh, in healthcare, and similar to the example you just gave about a vet, 
They can also use it and they are using it to analyse medical data to assist with more accurate diagnoses and treatment planning. Uh, in cybersecurity, they're using it to detect, uh, prevent and respond to cyber attacks because they can analyse network traffic and identify patterns of malicious behaviour. So lots of different examples. And then even as consumers in retail, um, you would have seen on your own social media that it personalises recommendations and advertisements based on your browsing history as well. So mm -hmm. it is pretty prevalent. Yeah, interesting. Toby, just quickly, Ben mentioned uh, the use in medical fields uh, to look at diagnosis and treatment. I was reading recently how it's great at looking at uh, diagnosis in some situations because it's really good at pattern recognition, but treatment uh, not so much because that involves uh, aiming for a particular outcome, not, not working out what is already happening. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, there was actually some quite good uh, work on therapy for, for example, COVID coming out very quickly with the best um, plans to, to manage your recovery, hopefully, from COVID. It's also very good for um, coming up with new medicine. So um, quite recently, uh, a new antibiotic was discovered um, by the use of some AI um, as we're increasingly getting drug resistance to the, the known antibiotics and we're not discovering new antibiotics um, quickly enough to, to deal with that. And so it was actually quite um, quite important that we we start inventing new antibiotics and it's costing you know, billions of dollars to come up with each new drug. So the fact that AI could actually speed that up and in, invent new antibiotics that work in completely new ways is actually quite exciting. Yeah. Tony's called in from Sydney. And Toby, I think this question might be best for you. Tony, hello. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, uh, from what I've read, the, uh, the mechanics or the engines out there that are reading the internet are behind in time. I heard someone say that they've only read a percentage of the internet up till 2019. Number one, is that correct? Secondly, I suppose, how many of these engines are out there? And thirdly, do you think that uh, the engines will catch up so that we're getting data in real time? Oh, that is a, a grab bag of excellent questions, Tony. Toby, can you help Tony with those? Yes, yes, Tony. Um, you're right. They, they, these are trained. It's, the only way to understand is to think they're a bit like the autocomplete on your smartphone. So when you're typing away, it works out how to best, how most probable to finish the word that you're typing. Um, and it's done that by having a dictionary of words and the frequency of the words um, poured into the program. Well, they've taken that to the next level. They pour in not a dictionary of words, but a large chunk of the internet, all of Wikipedia, all of Reddit, all of the US online patent database, um, all the text that they can find. And so um, it's a different scale. And so it can finish not just the word, it can finish the sentence or even finish the paragraph. Um, but uh, so far, they've had to say, you know, say, well, well, we'll start training it today and it takes six months to train it up. So that it's a snapshot of the past of the internet. Um, but I imagine as these tools become uh, quicker and better, um, they're going to be like the Google search engine, which is indexing every day. And it's um, only a, a short distance behind um, where the Internet is today. So, um, yes, um, but people, of course, are very worried about the privacy implications of that. Yeah, I'm also worried about feeding it six months worth of Reddit and seeing what might pop out. Fascinating. Uh, Anna's called in from Sydney, and this one I think we might give to Ben. Hi, Anna. Hi there, Hilary. Um, I just had a point about uh, our own brains and the need to train them up. And the, if we outsource these neural connections to machines, then our own brains are going to become a flabby mess. And particularly, you know, students the, who are learning the art of essay writing, um, it's a very important skill to be able to, to fire up those neural connections in your own brain 
and I feel like um, essay writing should now become something that's done in class rather than take uh, take home sort of homework because otherwise people will not actually be able to make those connections in their own brains anymore and actually kind of find the channels to to you know that spark their own ideas like idea creation is about neural connections and if we lack those own connect those connections in our own brain because we've outsourced intelligence to a machine then we suffer and our own intelligence suffers so i guess is there a, a question about whether essays and reports are the best way to judge criti critical thinking and creative thinking anna or and whether education might need to adapt well, I feel like it, the challenge of sourcing your own memories and your own information in class is a very important skill set and that without, you know, with, it's a muscle that needs to be flexed and if we're not flexing the muscle of, you know, accessing our own memory and our own information and making our own connections, that we will become dumber, basically, you know, and that we will not, we're outsourcing intelligence. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, topic, isn't it, Anna? Thanks so much for that point of view. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? Is this the end of creativity and originality and, and just letting people uh, use these AI generators as a, a crutch for writing things? Yeah, look, I might take a step back to just kind of talk about the relationship between work and education and then go on to that because I think to it kind of gives some context to Anna's question in terms of just how much this could likely take off. So if we look at the Ford economic outlook for this year, we're likely to see a decline in GDP growth or economic growth. We'll see an increase in unemployment and organisations will respond by trying to drive efficiencies to do work quicker. And ChatGPT as a free tool that they don't need to invest in is really prime and ripe to take off in 2023. So I think that it's going to be massive in the world of work. That will then uh, flow into education because we already hear concerns that graduates aren't job ready. And so if they're going to need to learn how to use it in work, they need to learn how to use it in schools and in universities and, and in TAFE. So I think we're, we're going to see it whether the education sector likes it or not, we're absolutely going to see it form part of what we teach, how we teach, and to your point as well, Hilary, how we do assessments in the future. And if I think about, you know, the evolution of creativity and communication, we used to tell stories verbally. We then used to capture them in books and learn through books. Then we had Google come along, which was able to speed up the process and curate content as well. And and you could argue that Google, um, you know, took away a level of creativity because whatever you put in, in terms of a search term, that gave you a, a particular perspective or a particular bias, biases as to what you were looking for. So this is, to me, an evolution of that. I think that it will retrain our brain to focus on other elements of creativity. And I think that um, it, it will focus on new skills or increase the importance and value on other uniquely human skills. But, but it also comes back to a great point that Penelope raised on the earlier call, which is that irrespective of all of this, 
you have to own the consequences of your own ideas and what you put out there. And so uh, there was a study done by the Stanford Daily that found that 5% of students in the last couple of months have actually taken entire essays from ChatGPT and submitted them without minimal rework or intervention. That's the kind of issue that we need to get on top of. 5% in terms of, you know, a university course and degrees of cheating, I don't think is uh, entirely significant compared to the norm, but that's the cohort that we need to be targeting. Well, yeah, and I mean, how do you how do you do that if they're not being made to face the consequences of their actions because people can't tell often whether this has been computer generated or not? Yeah, and that's that's what the the academics and and the education sector is trying to grapple with at the moment. I mean, there are countless other examples where um, there was ChatGPT where it was used for a Warden MBA. Um, business school exam. So an Ivy League university, um, they use ChatGPT and it got a B mark in that MBA exam. Or it's also been used to pass the US medical licensing exams as well. So um, absolutely something that that we need to get on top of. And people like Toby and others are are working um, on that at the moment. We're talking about the the capabilities, the risks, the opportunities, the implications of generative AI uh, platforms such as ChatGPT. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it can write just about anything. It can write reports, it can write essays, it can write poetry. It's not great poetry, I have to say. But it's really fun to play with and it gives you a sense of the role that AI could play with some of those repetitive uh, content generation tasks that seem to be so prevalent these days and also some of the ways that perhaps art students might be quaking in their boots at the idea that creativity might be computer generated. What do you think? Adam's joining in the conversation from Katoomba. Hi, Adam. G'day, how's it going? Good, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's um, a little bit of a moral panic about this new device. Uh, I wish I had had uh, Google or the internet when I did my undergraduate degree at uni. It would have made my research so much richer and so much easier. This is a similar, um, as someone has said, it's an evolution of the Google technology. Um, for searching, but it's also it also I've used it quite a bit, and it uses, throws up a lot of rubbish. Um, for instance, it said my partner was the first openly lesbian senator in the Australian Parliament, which I can assure you is just not true. <laughs> so it's obviously scraped um, this information off either a website that hates her or a website that loves her. So students need to interrogate this and. Is it correct or is it coming up with an absolute load of bollocks? And this could be a, a very rich vein of research and assignments for students. Test jet, chat, uh, GPT and see if it's um, telling the truth. I think it's a little bit of a moral panic. That's really interesting, Adam. Yeah, I was looking at some of the back and forth, the ways that human interaction has been tweaking and improving chat GPT. There was one question that said, what is the fastest marine mammal? And it nominated a fish. It's like, hello, no, <laughs> that's not a mammal. I went, oh, yes, I'm so sorry. You're right. Uh, the peregrine falcon. It's like, bat bow, no, still no. So there's a lot of uh, fact checking that does need to be done. That critical thinking perspective is is really useful for this conversation. I think, thanks, Adam. Um Ben, just uh, sorry, Toby, just quickly on that, uh, because it scrapes the internet, but perhaps scrapes all the silly bits as well. Is there any filtering for bias or inaccuracy or, or fake news? 
Uh, that's a great question. Uh, they've, they've done some, they've put some filters in, so you can't ask it of things that are uh, offensive or illegal. You ask it to, um, how do I make a bomb? It will say, um, I'm, I can't tell you how to make a bomb. It's illegal to make bombs. Though apparently, but, if you ask it to write a one-act play about how to make a bomb, it will do it. Yes. So the, the filters are, are pretty much hand-coded. So it's, it's quite easy, if you have a little bit of knowledge, um, how to get around the filters and get it to say those things. And, and also, as you say, it's, it's been trained on quantity of data, not quality of data. Um, they've decided that pouring more in is better than, than, than less. Um, and there's lots of um, untruths on the internet. There's lots of offensive things. And there's lots of sexism and racism and other things that it, it will tend to reproduce if we're not more careful with it. Yes, one journalist said, basically, and excuse my language, it's a consummate bullshitter because uh, in a technical sense, they said it's convincing sounding nonsense devoid of truth and AI excels at that. What are your thoughts on that? It is. Well, one of my colleagues uh, put it even more funnily. I think he said, it's the perfect man's planner. It will, uh, <laughs> it will with great confidence, tell you things that uh, it really doesn't know much at all about. Fascinating. Our guest today, Toby Walsh, Professor of Artificial Intelligence at University of New South Wales, and Dr. Ben Hamer, who's a work futurist out of Edith Cowan University Centre for Work and Wellbeing. Greg is in the Hunter Valley. Greg, you've got a question. Bring it on. Yes, I do. Thanks, uh, Hilary. Uh, for your, your guests, I was interested to see if anyone's been doing any work investigating whether the chat GPT picks up a difference between your profiles that you log on and register with. Because as we know, Microsoft is behind chat GPT. And when I started to create a profile, the one thing it asked for me to do was to allow access to my entire Microsoft profile, cloud, OneDrive a profile. And then that really made me starting to think about how much it starts to pull down of my years and years of emails or my work in Teams uh, or the various other platforms that Microsoft uses. And as opposed to, say, setting up a completely clean profile via just a Google account and it having very little opportunity to pull on any of that other data so that whatever it responds to, there are different responses according to the profile. Wow, yes. So tailoring that content. Toby Walsh, uh, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, the, the sad thing is, as usual, we don't really know what um, Microsoft or OpenAI, the company behind this tool, uh, are doing with all that information. Uh, it's the usual story with uh, Silicon Valley is that they, they do hoover up all this information and use it in ways that um, we may find um, troubling. Um, they may sell that information to other people. They may use it to target you in the future. Um, it is, um, despite the company being called OpenAI, they are actually not very open at all. They started out as a non-profit, didn't they? But they kind of switched course along the way and they're not making any of that code open source, are they? Uh, no, they're not. Um, it's a bit of a strange company. It's got the backing of Elon Musk and various other well-known people in the Valley and now it's got um, a lot of money from Microsoft. Microsoft have just announced they're going to put another $10 billion, they've already put a couple of billion into the company. Um, and so you can be pretty sure it's um, 
Microsoft's going to want to return on that investment. Um, and these tools are going to be turning up in all of the Microsoft Office suites. So um, if you're ever using um, Word, it's going to be there quite soon. If you're ever using Excel, it will be writing formulae for you in Excel. If you're in Outlook writing an email, it'll be there. And um, so it, it's going to be widely available. Um, and they are, like Google, are going to be collecting lots of information. And, and information is money these days. Yes, proceed with caution. Great question from Greg there. Elizabeth's in Victoria. Hello, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, I agree with the lady who rang in and said that we basically we can't hand ourselves, our own intellect over to computers, and I totally agree. And we've got to remember that um, it was humans that actually feed in the, the information into the computers in the first place. So, you know, we're handing our... If we let, let this um, instrument take over, use it all the time, we, we really are um, lowering our own, I think, our own ability to think and, and intellect. And I, I just don't think it's, a, it's, not, it's not safe, I don't think, and it is not um, very smart. Uh, I, I really think we need to be very careful with it. Yeah, well, Elizabeth, you and Penelope and Anna and quite a few of our text message correspondents are on the same page with that. Here's another text. Human intelligence is already in decline with the average IQ some 10 points lower than half a century ago. I haven't fact-checked that, so I'm not sure. What with the ubiquitous, insidious brain debilitation of COVID, the text goes on, as we learn to live with the virus, we're probably going to need machines to think for us in the future. So that's the uh, the end point scenario of all this uh, discussion. Um, Loretta's in Canberra with a question for Toby and Ben. Hello, Loretta. Well, hi, Hilary. Good morning. I'm just um, putting a um, proposition forward about um, in light of the um, recent Productivity Commission into school student outcomes uh, about the um, NERA report. And um, the proposition is if educators accept that this AI exists, I'd, I'd be interested in the panel's view about whether now is a really opportune time to reform how we teach students to actually think and apply knowledge because it strikes me that with this technology moving forward, we still have to, as individuals with our brains, figure out if what is spat out at us is actually fit for purpose. Did we ask it the right question? Did we get the right answer for our purposes? That's a really interesting question, Loretta. Thank you for that. And Ben uh, Ben Hamer, we touched on that before, didn't we, with this uh, idea that perhaps the ways we assess work might need to change. Uh, is it a problem too that um, we don't, I think, yet have any software that can tell for a fact whether something's been computer generated or not? Yeah, and I think what Loretta's raised is a really great point around an opportune time to think about how we reform the design and delivery of education. And that includes um, the role that humans play and how it complements the, the AI. I think that the key thing, whether we're talking study or work, is that uh, this is an augmentation of what we do. It doesn't replace what we do. So it means that we have to do what we do, whether it's in our job or in our studies, differently. Um, and going back to the point, students will be using this, whether we like it or not, to generate entire essays or even to help with uh, that basic level or first draft analyses or to just ask a question to help with framing a problem for them as they go about doing an assignment. So if they're going to be using it, whether we like it or not, I think it's really important that we make sure we're teaching them how to use it in the right way, how to 
check for misinformation or for misleading content, how to make sure that what's being given to them isn't full of all this unconscious or perpetuating inherent biases uh, as well. So, for example, uh, you could be doing an assignment where you're looking at um, Black Lives Matter and then you ask ChatGPT a question and it scours the internet and it gives you a whole heap of responses unbeknownst to you that are written by uh, white males in the Bible Belt in America. And so it's going to give you a particular perspective. So it's really important that we think about, well, what does critical and original thinking look like in this new age of education with this AI? What does asking the right questions mean, as, as Loretta said, because garbage in, garbage out when it comes to these kind of platforms and how we go about developing those skills around fact-checking and data integrity. Yeah, I remember having a discussion about education on this program recently where the person we had on said, look, kids don't need to be taught information now. They have have that at their fingertips. They need to be taught how to critically assess information. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Toby Walsh, uh, am I right in saying that uh, things like chat GPT don't plagiarise things per se because they create new sentences, but what about copying someone's style? Is there an issue with that? Yeah, they, they, what they say is likely to be genuinely novel in the sense that you won't find those exact words in a sentence elsewhere on the internet. So tools that look to see whether the text is copied from, from other bits of the internet uh, won't flag this as being plagiarised. Um, but um, they, they do copy people's style. I mean, you can ask it, um, you know, write in the style of William Shakespeare or in the style of a Chicago mobster or whoever you want, or even um, a, a well-known author um, and uh, a current author. So um, that, that does raise some challenging questions about whether um, that person's intellectual property and copyright is being respected. Ashley texted in, this chatbot might even replace radio presenters in the near future. We don't joke about those things, Ashley. <laughs> One of my presenters got it to write an intro to the radio show in the style of Hilary Harper. It was like, I feel seen in the most horrible way. Let's take some more calls to deflect attention from that for a moment. We're talking about the the risks and opportunities of artificial intelligence, particularly one called ChatGPT that generates content from a massive database called the internet that it has scraped for information. Gwillem's called in from Eltham in New South Wales. Hi, Gwillem. Hello. Hello. Look, um, I'd like to say that we are a very flawed species and one of the things that is really lacking is our ability to connect and heal each other. And uh, technology has driven us further apart already. This thing is just another distraction which is going to distract us a lot. That thing does not know longing. It does not know pain. So how can it ever understand another human? And so we have to actually, yeah, we have to, in caring for Mother Earth, we have to connect together as well and to heal ourselves. We're not, um, we're not good on the relationship front unfortunately. We are not good on that. And uh, that's where, why we are, um, you know, we're just not connecting. And uh, my grandchildren uh, live on their devices and I want to connect with them. And it's very sad it's that really... I cannot connect with them on a deeper level uh, most of the time. 
It's hard, isn't it, Gwilym? One grandchild. Sorry? It is really hard, isn't it? And I think it's a source of great unease for a lot of people. A lot of people are really worried about that and what it means, whether it does threaten our relationships. Gwilym, thanks for reminding us about that. Jethro on Facebook says, for art to have meaning, I feel as if it has to be created by something self-aware. So he's talking about uh, the AIs that create images and video as well as text. Loving hearing your thoughts about this because uh, it does create a lot of emotions in different people. Lynn in Melbourne, hello to you. Oh, hi, Hilary. I'm glad you're a real person out there. <laughs> How would you know? <laughs> well, you're convincing me. Uh, I, it just struck me that robo-debts and it could be an example of AI of a certain sort going completely wrong because, you know, programming in an idea of how to detect so-called um, cheats or people who owe money to um, Centrelink went completely berserk. I mean, there were checks and balances that could have been used that weren't used. But is this an example of what can happen with trying to just be generalised and programmatic about things. It's a really interesting question. Toby Walsh, do you have thoughts on that for Lynn? Yes, I mean, it is something to be very worried about. And RoboDebt was a catastrophe uh, for the people involved. It's been a catastrophe for the... For, uh, it cost uh, billions of dollars to, to, to fix um, and entirely unnecessary, as, your, as the caller suggested. And there should have been checks and balances put in. And... and, and the ultimate problem is that computers can't be held accountable for their mistakes and they don't have our empathy or common sense. And so they couldn't work out that it was, you know, it was absurd to be sending out these large debt notices to people who, who just had, uh, you know, a lumpy income or whatever the, the problem was. Um, and so we should be very careful in the future of removing humans completely from any, any cycle like that. Um, and unfortunately, these tools will be used increasingly by businesses and, and possibly by government um, to try and answer the, all the all the requests and, and queries coming in. Um, everyone, I mean, when I gave, uh, I showed the, the tool to uh, to my wife. I, she, we quickly wrote a, a complaint letter to, about a Fitbit. <laughs> Very good complaint letter. And so Fitbit are going to be receiving uh, a huge uh, volume of, of complaint letters. And the only way they're going to be able to respond is by using ChatGPT or tools like it to write the response. And so eventually you're going to end up, I fear, in a situation where the computers are writing complaint letters to the companies and the companies are replying with computers. <laughs> no humans were involved. I actually feel like that's not the worst case scenario if no humans are involved in that tedious work. Wow. Toby Walsh is with us, a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales, and Dr. Ben Hamer, a work futurist at Edith Cowan University. And the switchboard has just exploded in these last minutes of our talkback on the AI chat GPT. Let's see how many we can get to uh, in the time we have left. Trevor in Sydney, uh, what's your question or comment? Well, I've got two quick ones. As this mines the web for information, does it also mine things like Facebook and YouTube? Because I spend half of my working day telling my customers what they've read on Facebook and seen on YouTube is total garbage and absolutely wrong. And the other quickie is that I'm the CEO of a large public company. I can get rid of three-quarters of my staff using AI do I keep everybody on, work them less and pay them the same, or do I sack everyone so I can make a maximum dividend? A difficult ethical question. That's a really good Automation, one, Trevor. 
Yeah, I want to quickly put that to Ben because it's intriguing to think about the kind of jobs that might go by the board, Ben, but also possibly new jobs that might emerge uh, due to this technology. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a big one. So uh, I think to Trevor's point, um, as the CEO of a, a big company, there's a real opportunity here because rather than use this to to get rid of roles and, and whatnot, it's an opportunity to actually add greater value to do more and therefore grow as an organisation by keeping people, keeping roles, but freeing up time to do other work as well. So I think there's the opportunity there. The other thing is um, you've got to think about your talent pipeline as a a leader in an organisation. So if you get rid of a whole lot of people and give the work to AI, where are your people, your middle managers, your senior executives going to come from who know the core business? And I think if you go to, from a customer perspective, the likes of Penelope, Anna and others, there's a lot of concern around people interacting with AI and wanting and craving that human connection. And so you don't want to take that away from your customers. So if I then just kind of go to your your bigger question, Hilary, around roles that might disappear, roles that might get created, you know, you'll see some, some types of roles like copywriters, data entry clerks, language translators that may over time uh, disappear. But going back to that point that it's more about job augmentation. So our jobs will change, some tasks will disappear, but then new tasks will come with that capacity that we gain. And it's also worth noting the World Economic Forum does a lot of the research on this kind of topic of emerging technologies and work. And they've always stated in their research that they've found emerging technology creates more jobs than it displaces or disappears. So there's always this net positive. And so we'll see things like AI trainers, AI ethicists who are grappling with these questions of making sure that um, it's used in the right way. We'll see a greater demand for data engineers, data scientists, and these uh, human AI interaction designers will emerge as a new type of job as well. AI ethicists. I can just see the the job applications writing themselves there. Let's take a couple quick more calls before we finish. Uh, Glenn is uh, calling in from near Canberra. Hi, Glenn. Yes, good morning. How are you going? Good. What's been your experience of ChatGPT? Yes, look, I've got the experience with the throwing up rubbish. Um, I keep bees and I wanted to try and find out about radar tracking of bees. So I asked ChatGPT to uh, look up articles on low-cost harmonic radar tracking of honeybees um, and quote references. It came back with a description of harmonic radar and tracking honeybees, but it also quoted three references. These look completely legitimate. They quoted the title. They quoted three or four authors. It was in the Journal of Apiculture. It had the issue number, the page number, the date. They look completely legitimate. However, when I went to the Journal of Apiculture and tried to look up these articles, they don't exist. It was a completely fake, made-up set of references. Wow. So, quote references, but you might have to specify actual references. That's really fascinating, Glenn. Thank you. Uh, Margaret's texted in, I think some men on dating sites might be using a very inadequate AI to write their profiles because surely they can't be real. History does not record that, Margaret. Rod in Tasmania, welcome to you. Uh, As an English teacher, what are your thoughts? Well, I've been teaching English for a long time. I'm 65. I'm still teaching. And I've noticed over time, we started off, when I started teaching, there were no computers in classrooms. Now everybody's using a computer to do everything. And I've been thinking for a long time that we need to find better ways to assess rather than trying to block all these different rabbit holes that are appearing in technology. 
So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be assessing people on their ability to write essays. Maybe we should be having one-on-one conversations with them where we ask them questions about the topic that we're discussing in class and we assess them on that. And maybe we just need to change our whole perspective and not be scared of technology. I think technology is amazing. If you can get technology to write a report on something, brilliant. But if you want to you know, assess um, whether somebody's really understanding your content, that conversation's really good and they can't fake that. Yeah, I'm seeing, you know, anything written being done in longhand in class, but that's a really fascinating idea that you might go back to, you know, Socratic dialogues, just having conversations with your students. That well, could be a, well, a good one. The, the thing is, the thing is, it's very hard to, to assess some kids who say can't read and write, and I've had students like that, they could they could view a video and talk about the meaning they got out of out of a movie. You know when the when the um, the main characters changed in the movie, what changed them, and so on. And I and I had this kid in tears because he got an A for his presentation. He couldn't read or write, but he could set up his video and talk about it. I'm thinking, why can't we just change these things? Like, you know, so that everybody can can achieve, and we're not worried so much about this technology yeah you know we can't we can't get rid of the technology we might as well you know work with it rod that's really interesting that you raise that because i want to put that to our guests too toby walsh it's been suggested by some commentators on this technology that could actually help level the playing field you could use it for tutoring disadvantaged kids you could use it for helping people uh, whose english language skills aren't great to write job applications one text message has said ai to write job applications could it get me off the dole Uh, is that an application we could see uh, happening with this Definitely, there are some. While there are these concerning uses that people might be using it to cheat, or it may ultimately dumb us down, there are also some really positive uses. And being a personal tutor is one of them. Um, it, it can answer your questions, however trivial, however um, simplistic you might think they are. Um, it's infinitely patient. Um, a, a colleague of mine taught themselves some Python programming over a day, um, and, and she said it was fantastic. It. it, it um, it was always there. It didn't matter. She didn't have to feel that she was asking questions that were too stupid. Um, and that can be provided at almost, almost no cost to students everywhere. Yes, indeed. Wow, we're just getting flooded with text messages. I want to see if we can uh, have a quick call before we go. Paul in Melbourne, hello. Oh, good morning. Yeah, um, my question, I suppose, is uh, we use, I'm an English teacher like Rod, and um, we use Google Classroom a lot as well. And we're looking at Turnitin. I don't know if you know about Turnitin. Oh, yeah. Where you put it in and it checks for plagiarism. But I'm just wondering whether those sort of um, tools that teachers can use uh, are now going to be redundant uh, because of the style changes, as one of your presenters alluded to earlier. Yeah. Ben, uh, can you quickly answer that for Paul? Yeah, so from what I've heard, it's uh, turn it in and some of the plagiarism software isn't able to actually detect because you could ask the same question at the same time and press the send button over 10 different computers and it will give you 10 different answers. So it is really hard to, to try and pick it up. Um, and as well, you know, I've used it before to because I'm a, an author, I've used it to look at my book and write content in my style and it's able to do that. So again, it is really hard to detect, which I think brings us back to the question around, do we need new methods or different methods of assessment?
Yes, indeed. Look, it's it's a huge topic. We've only got time to really uh, dip a toe in today. But thank you both so much for joining us, Toby Walsh and Dr. Ben Hamer. Thank you. Pleasure. Toby Walsh is a Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales AI Institute. Dr. Ben Hamer is a work futurist and adjunct professor at Edith Cowan University's Centre for Work and Wellbeing. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.